This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're deconstructing Warren Buffett for the last five years. Oh, and so much more to go. <laughs> Only 20 to go. It's just fascinating. You know, we're, we're, we've been doing a little series here on the checklist that we've come back to. And um, we're just going to keep on going with that. Because I love the checklist. And... I'm convinced that everybody loves the checklist. It's fascinating. I like hearing about it. Um, to give the intro to the checklist, guys, if you are just hearing about this for the first time, we first started this uh, checklist of investing a year ago, roughly. So go back, look for episodes that say checklist. They're a bit scattered because we kept getting distracted by life events and market events, but uh, they're back there. And then we retook it up this year a few months ago and again it's a little there's some interruptions in the episodes but go back and find them because um they go in order of the checklist items so dad this is your checklist i have not heard it before and we are on events we are just to remind you the this is following an acronym r-u-l-e-s rules and um R is radar, where you found the, the company. U is essentially the four M's, meaning management, margin of safety, understanding the business. L is loving the business. Con connecting your values to the business is the key to that. And um, and knowing that you want to, you know, you're happy to own it and be proud of it. I and really liked e, that one. <laughs> e is the event that put this on sale. And we're insisting on an event. We started off, with what have you what have you got on the first the first ones we've done so far for event um yes. okay so i've got event insist on one which mm -hmm. is something i greatly enjoy so the first one is i know the event then it's the event was easy to find then the event will take at least one year to resolve which we talked about a lot last time and then the event will take no more than three years to resolve Right. So we know it's not a terminal problem, right? That's the key to having a, a sort of a deadline when things will be resolved and uh, the market will no longer be uncertain about what the future brings. Because as long as the market is reasonably uncertain about the future, then we have to be also, right? In other words, it, it, if we can't say where this company is going to be in 10 years with a high degree of certainty, then we really can't put a value on it. It's very difficult to understand what the thing is worth if you don't know the yeah. next 10 years reasonably, conservatively, what, what was likely to happen, right? But there's I find be this interesting lows, because there's, there's a really big gap between three years and it's not terminal. Wait, those are the same thing. Oh, by terminal, you meant like it will end. I meant like the company yeah. will end. That's okay, what I mean so there's by the company will end. Terminal means this thing doesn't get resolved and the company becomes, you know, broken. 
essentially. Okay, but I guess what I'm saying is maybe it takes four years. And yeah, yet sure. that would that would not meet the checklist item. Like, for example, you talked about BP last time and the um, Gulf oil spill, which was mm -hmm. a huge potential company ending, possibly litigation situation for them. Right. And I think a lot of people would have said, well, maybe it'll take four years or maybe it'll take five years. Or maybe the company will go bankrupt. Jim well, Cooper yeah, but obviously if you're to the point where you're saying like, I like this company and I think it will end at some point, um, you're past that. But um, but I'm saying like maybe it's not exactly three years. Is that one a little bit sure, it's, three years-ish? Yeah, I mean, it's a judgment call. So it's going to be, I mean, we like to make the judgment that it's going to be three years. And we talked briefly about why. Yeah. Last time, because yeah. we want to make sure we're targeting a 26% return. And if we so bought if it this takes, company where yeah. it takes four years to get back there, then the return drops to 18%. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we we, we want to we know, we want to feel that it's going to get there. I guess that's about the best you can do. Obviously, there's all sorts of unknowns. And if it drops to 18%, that certainly isn't the end of the world, is it? And if it takes five years, it's it's fifteen percent, which is our minimum acceptable rate of return. That's not the end of the world either. Yeah. But no, but I, I don't take want your to point. Invest in things that are, God, yeah. I don't know, five years out. It's it's too far. Well, and I take your point that that we're aiming for a higher level. We're aiming for a right. higher return. Right. And the reason those situations that let's say go five five years. Um, are not as desirable is that they're by definition more risky, more time, more risk. Yep. And uh, potentially lower return. And that's that's the thing. I, I think we can pretty well reduce the level of risk by following these these this checklist. That's the whole point of the checklist is to reduce the level of risk to where we're not going to have a permanent loss of capital. Right. If we've done a decent job at all mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. these checklists, you you won't have a permanent loss of capital. What you're really risking is that you're not going to get these high returns. Mm. And then think about it. If you put your money in the stock market in an index fund, it, it'll it have you know, 10, 12 years where the rate of return will be 13, 14%. And then it'll have 10 or 12 years where the rate of return will be zero. You know, and, and you end up long term with the market rates of return, modern market rates of return in the range of about 9%. Mm. And if that's going to get you where you want to go, then learning to do all of this and and figuring all this out is maybe just an academic exercise for you. Maybe, well, maybe mm -hmm. you just really like it and it's fun mm -hmm. to do. But for a lot of people, that would put an end to it right there. It's just like, hey, 9% works for me. Great. Then just put your money in the market and forget about it and just keep putting it in, particularly when the market's getting crushed. Right. And you will end up with, you know, roughly market rates of return. That is the prescription of almost every financial advisor out there. It's certainly Warren Buffett's prescription for, for most people who aren't mm -hmm. going to learn to invest. You have to diversify and you have to just stay with it. Um, but you will you will pay the price for that. It's not an easy road because you will experience certainly in your investing lifetime one or two times where the market completely crashes and all of your retirement portfolio is down 50 or 60%. And the news will be horrific at that point in time. It might be war. It might be depression. It might be pandemic. But it's going to be horrific. And you're going to be very scared to keep putting money in the market. 
because you don't know anything about it. All you're doing is hoping and praying that it goes back up. And it always has. So people take a deep breath and they, they try to stay with it. But what happens to most people is they pull their money out and then they don't see those 9% returns. They, they get much, much lower percent returns, which is also why financial advisors tell you to stick your money in bonds and more and more in bonds hmm. as you get closer and closer to retirement because you will not in retirement necessarily have the time to watch the market go through a cycle like that. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have to withdraw money when it's really low and you're going to run out. Hmm. So um, this the idea here is to reduce our risk and we think that by doing rule one style investing, we reduce our risk fabulously relative to putting your money in the market in an index fund. We yeah, that's super interesting. Very risk reductive. Yeah. I really, really take that point that this whole checklist is not about finding the perfect company that perfectly matches every single, maybe this is your point or isn't point, but this is what I'm hearing. That it's not about finding the perfect company that matches every single strict checklist point. This is about reducing your risk and finding a company that is best situated to do really well, um, regardless or maybe because of a bad situation that it's in, that it's going to come out of that better. And reducing the risk by shortening the amount of time here uh, is a really big part of that. And I think that it's um – the essence, the essence of a checklist is that it comes about from our mistakes, right? Mm. And so what I believe about this checklist now after 40 years of, of working in this industry, what I believe about the checklist is that if I follow it rigorously, I will not have a major mistake, mm -hmm. right? It's when I didn't or there wasn't a check item. Uh -huh. I think that's uh, which the I'm, truth. <laughs> I'm going to get to one of those next, right? <laughs> that came onto this very thing because of an event that happened about 10 years ago or eight years ago. So uh, let's go on. We've got, we've got the first four. We've got two more. Okay. Ready? Yeah. So it's just good for one, me to hear that. I just have to say it's good for me to hear that because I am so literal in my thinking, like to my detriment often. And so to me, when I have a checklist point, it's like, it has to meet that or it doesn't get checked full stop. And having some, uh, what am I trying to say? Like an overarching goal or idea around the point of the list helps take a little bit of that away. Well, here's the number five. Okay. Okay. So number five is the event solution will not require adding debt. The event solution will not require adding debt. Okay. So this one came about, this wasn't on the list a while back, but this one came about because of a company that I bought into, which was starting to have issues building out their plant and they began to add debt. And I, they were so certain that they were, the management team was so certain that they had everything under control and was all good that I didn't dig deeper in when it was sitting right on my right in front of me that all this debt that they were adding could ultimately cause them to go bankrupt and they did they went bankrupt after because they added the, debt the debt was in order to build to finish to, the plant right to finish the plant yeah. to solve the problem that they were having right yeah. they made their yeah 
So it was like, oh, we just need to put in another 50 million and then it'll be the world's greatest plant. Sure. And we got it. Right. And then they ran into another problem and they needed more debt. So this resonates to today with Boeing. And and so Mm. this particular item on the checklist um, made me decide to exit Boeing. Hmm. And hmm. we did take, we took a profit because we bought Boeing very cheap when it was being run down during the COVID pandemic. But I believe that Boeing ultimately will be back at three or $400 a share. And we're selling out of it here at 220-ish, you know? And so the reason so I'm as doing somebody that who believe, yeah, tell me more about that is because of this number five on events the the events solution will not require adding debt. Boeing added $63 billion of debt, 63 billion. Okay. And my expectation, I saw them doing it and, but I'd bought so cheap. I had a big cushion. Um, and I thought I understood why they were doing it. There was COVID pandemic related. Let's load up with cash. Right. And they weren't really spending it. And then I thought, here's what I also thought. I thought that they would retire the debt when they sold off all the airplanes that are sitting on the ground. And they didn't. Hmm. They have certainly stacked up cash, but they've held on to the debt. And the debt obligation net cash is over twice as big as they've ever had in their history. Hmm. So if this management team just keeps running into problems, and it seems that they continue to do so, then these problems, these little you know, these cockroaches that come out of the cupboard. We always like to say that, you know, there's not just one cockroach that you see, right? (laughs) There's money more in there. And that's exactly the case with Boeing. We got one cockroach after another cockroach after another cockroach, and they just keep coming. And Hmm. at some point, this starts to look a lot like that other company that ultimately went into Chapter 11. I mean, right now, Boeing is losing market share to Airbus hand over fist, Delta Airlines is buying Airbuses, not Boeing, right? I mean, that if this wasn't a, a almost a monopoly company, I would really be nervous for anybody that owns it. But it is almost a monopoly company, and I think that there's fairly low risk, but I have lost my certainty about it. I am no longer certain. I just feel like I don't know what these guys are doing or if they even know what they're doing, and I don't I don't want to own a company like that. When you the, say that you think it will be back at 400 at some someday. point, yeah. someday, where, like, what's the discrepancy between that thought and everything you just said? Where well, does it come down to, okay, this is worrying, but it'll be back at 400 sense. someday. This seems like a lot of bad cockroaches, but it'll be back at 400 someday. Like, when does it turn into... And I'm not confident enough about that, that I don't want to be involved. I think it happens when I look at whether I think this is a simple business anymore or not. Hmm. And the, and the fact that it isn't, it's fairly simple to understand. They build airplanes, right? But it turns out that building modern airplanes today is extremely complex. It's a 10 year cycle. And it is obviously not that difficult to make a mistake that plagues you for the next 10 years. Hmm. And so, while Boeing is a great company and while their management team may f- most likely will figure their way out of all this, the fact that they've loaded up so much debt makes them vulnerable to another major shock. The next major shock, they may not be able to get additional capital 
And what I see in their balance sheet is they're stacking up $25 billion in, in cash, which makes me think they're worried about the next shock, hmm. right? They're not paying down their debt. So I just feel like the risk rose substantially higher than I thought it would. And even though I think it's likely they find their way through it, it's likely they pay off the debt, um, it's likely they succeed, it's no longer do I have a high degree of confidence. Hmm. I would bet on Boeing, but I don't like to bet. But you're not. <laughs> but I'm not betting. I, when I, this money I'm investing is, I mean, this will be money that someday you'll have, right? I mean, it's like this is, this is generational money, and I don't want to bet it. Mm, that money's going straight into Porsches and polo horses. So <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> Speaking of Porsches and inflation, this is unbelievable. Porsche built, Porsche built um, a race car in 2016 called a GT4 Club Sport. It's a pure race car. You can't drive it on the street. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And they sold them for about $160,000 each. They made, I think, twenty-three or 2,400 of them worldwide. Okay. All right. Now, today, you can't find one almost to buy if you wanted to buy it. And if you did want to buy it, it costs about 150000 This is now five years later. A race car is selling near its sticker price. That just doesn't happen. I mean, in the it in, totally in, happens with Porsches. It happens. Oh no, not race cars. You think that's inflation? Oh yeah, that's inflation. They race cars typically. If you buy a race car, by the time you get done driving it for four or five years, you're going to sell it for half of what you paid for it, maybe. But hmm. this is this is not, as far as I know. At least you know your uncle Steve. My limited experience with many, many, many before bed car searches being done next to me <laughs> by my husband manny Nuno is that is, is that you porsche. can't get an older porsche for less than it was an originally <laughs> less than it originally cost like they are so they make because they make so few of them like you just said yeah. and then people get obsessed with that particular car that was made in that particular year because it was so good for x y and z reason and then they want it and these things do not lose their value yeah, so i'm yeah. not surprised by that at all but maybe inflation is part i'm sure inflation is partially involved it's, uh, also it's, just, it's, it's, been it's just the gt4 the, the everybody's world. into the gt4 oh god it's such a nice car now that <laughs> now that your uncle and i own three of them <laughs> got a little carried away but they're good investments they're very good investments your generational wealth is safe with Porsche. oh my gosh how that's great the yeah. latest uh before bed internet searches are all on uh electric cars he's nuno's obsessed with electric cars ah, right now and which one does cool. he want and I it's know. not just automatically tesla it's not 
Mm. It's not, which I think is probably a good thing for if we're assuming electric cars are good for the world, then it's a good thing for the world. It's a a good thing. I don't know what that's going to mean for Tesla stock if all of a sudden serious e-car buyers are starting to look at yeah. Everything but a Tesla. No, yeah. The one he's really into is the Audi e-tron. And a friend of ours got one and loves it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's um, quite expensive. I think more than the top Tesla, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but like apparently is like way better for all sorts of reasons that I have forgotten. So... Who knows? Maybe we'll end up with well, an electric car. But we've been debating all the charging situations and how annoying it would be and road trips and all that stuff. I'm not super convinced. Well, for what it's worth, I've got my order in for the Ford e-truck. Sick. Yeah. How are you going to charge it? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> we have to buy a charging station. Ford lets me get in line. <laughs> and I thought it was amazing that Ford had 150,000 or 180,000 people put about 100 bucks down to to get in line to buy one uh, when they come out until I saw that over 800,000 people got online for the Tesla truck. The one that Elon the one Musk broke with the window on. The shatterproof yeah, that one. windshield and that, that one. he broke. Yeah. Classic, classic demo. Eight, I think 800,000, and they stopped tracking the number. <laughs> they don't know where the number is. But it's bigger. The number of people in line for that truck is Wait, bigger that's than the number of people, people who line. were trying to buy it? Or to that's the number it. of people who were just looking at it on no, the website? No, to buy it. They put down a like a $1,000 deposit. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know. It's been an Anybody interesting. Anybody that's betting on Tesla, they're not completely crazy. It's just of a, course they're not crazy company. But you know, we were debating the difference between Tesla and Audi in what we would actually get as owners of this car, and debating the um, repair situation because with Tesla you have to use only them or you void your warranty. And we've heard from a bunch of people we know who have had Teslas that a lot of the stuff on those cars break, whereas mm. Audi obviously has a million Audi dealerships all over the place and you can take it to any certified Audi dealer, any certified Audi, what do you call it? Fixer. I'm losing my words. Fixer. Yeah. Yeah. Fixer. That's what they're called. That's what they call it in the yellow pages. (laughs) Yeah. Fixer of Audis. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And wait, let me just say one more thing that I've discovered, which is actually, I think also really good we looked at Tesla two years ago and didn't end up getting one. Part of the reason we didn't get one is that the charging situation seemed pretty dire. And in the last two years, there are now way more charging stations all over Switzerland. Mm. And there's even one really close to our house. So we wouldn't even need to go put one in our garage. We could just use this charging station that's down the street. Huge difference that makes somebody like me who's allergic to hassle actually maybe consider an electric car. Okay, the end with electric cars. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. All right, next one. So that's the debt thing. And the last one on the event list of checklists is... Yes. In spite of this event, or perhaps because of it, I can specify at least three clear reasons why, if I were only able to buy one company for the rest of my life, this is the one. 
Whoa. Whoa. In spite of this event, or perhaps because of it, I can specify three reasons Mm -hmm. why I would only buy this company for the rest of my life. Yep. Why this would be the one I'd buy for the rest of my life. I love this check mark right here because it pushes the bar very high toward that idea that Buffett has that really you should have to be a great investor, you should really have a checklist of or a or a whole a, a punch card of only 20 punches for your entire life. And when mm-hmm. you've done punch 20 new companies out there, you're done investing. And the point of that is that you want to look at each of the companies as something that you would want to hold on to as a kind of gym that would eventually, almost certainly, make you wealthy. Hmm. Um, a little bit like finding a piece of prime real estate that you know absolutely will be, at some point, extremely valuable, right? Hmm. Hmm. Think about it like that. And then think about it. Will this company, does this company have that kind of gravitas to it? Is it... it and it, it, it could be a toy maker. I don't mean it, it's got to be making, you know, world yeah. changing nuclear weapons or something. It's just got to got to be um, a, a company that you have such a high degree of confidence in, like a C's candy or a, or a great utility or right. A defense contractor that's that is going to be around forever. Um, you know, my favorite burrito company, whatever it is, it's still the idea that if I buy this thing and and find out this is the only company I can own, I'm comfortable with that. This is a great investment. This is the polar opposite of diversification. So while we are going to diversify, we're going to spread things out among a number of companies almost organically as we go forward. But this, this idea that you save yourself by diversification is only true in the sense that you're highly likely to have a positive return whatever the market return is, you're probably going to do that. If you want to get wealthy and you want to get there soon, then that idea doesn't work. Warren Buffett would never just massively diversify his portfolio, and neither would I. And we don't want you to either. What we want you to do is buy really good companies when they go on sale. And this little check mark right here is telling you, think about it as if it's the only one you're going to buy ever. Mm-hmm. There yeah. are quite a few checkpoints on here that relate to that. Yeah. That relate to, to getting to that. In the whole checklist. Yep. Yeah, in the whole checklist. Yep. Um, just keep and, coming back to that. And we just, right, you just keep coming back to it because it's such a high bar. It's such a high bar. Buffett in his letters talks about how he has lifetime companies. Yeah. And there's four or five of them. And he owns a lot of other stuff besides those lifetime companies. But he very clearly thinks of them very differently. How do you, uh, how do you think about that sort of structure like with this? Like would this match that kind of structure? Yeah, it does. Um, just the way buying a farm does, right? So you, you go out and buy a farm with the idea that it's a lifetime thing. It's, it's that, that no, but simple. what I'm saying is he owns companies for years as investments that are not part of his four or five lifetime companies. But my guess is they started there. Yeah. <laughs> they were I, 
idealized at the point of acquisition that they would be a lifetime company. And I think then so too. Turn out I to think that's so. a great point. I think so too. In a way, you know, it's like he's, he, it's almost like that process you go through as an investor where you're studying a company and learning about it, but you don't own it. And then once you own a little bit of it, it becomes really real. And suddenly you realize that there's about 80% of information about this company that you don't know. So then mm. you learn it. I feel like that's a bit of the process he goes through in a way where often because a number of these companies are private that he buys, um, he really can't know that much about them until he actually owns them and operates sure. them. Sure. And, um, and so going through that process, I, I do think he does... Um, kind of discover as he goes, as it becomes real, and, and I see think that's how they what perform. you guys will all discover too. When you're you you go after each company as if it's you know the the one company, and and you buy it accordingly, and you really load up the truck accordingly, right? And then and then you own it, and as you own it, you start to see that it is or it isn't going to be a lifetime company, right? It. Yeah. As it goes down the road and you continue to own this business, it may fall off of that high high bar. Yeah. Uh, just just because they're not performing or the management team isn't the guys you thought they were or you know, what the the com essentially it's not performing the way you thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. And then you start to look at it like I'm going to keep you until I see something better. Yeah. And then you'll move out of that. Yeah. I'm thinking about how he wrote about Capital Cities, which became ABC Network. And he loved that company. Like when he first bought it, said this is one of the lifetime companies. And then, and then, and like just saying the praises of the leadership of the CEO, you know, I would want this person to be in my family kind of level of adulation. And, um, and as it turned into ABC and lots of changes and then regulatory changes around broadcast networks, he stuck with it until there was a, a shift. And I can't remember what exactly happened, but something happened and he sold. And then he wrote for years how much he regretted selling mm. that company mm. and how it had been part of the lifetime set of companies and that he missed out on a lot of its success. Yep. Um, and I just... Like that strikes me as like, yeah, that's the emotional attachment that you get to a company that you go through so many years with and, and um, respect for so long. Yep. And then at the end of the day, you have to make decisions about when to sell companies. We'll talk about that some someplace down the road. But you make a decision to sell a company, to replace it on your portfolio, Right, based on what's going on with that company right now, and it could very easily be that you, you, you made a mistake, and those are the kind of mistakes Buffett makes. Are the kind of mistakes I've made in the past, and you can't feel too bad about them. I mean, obviously, you want to get the most out of every investment, but you know, doing well on investments is its own reward, and and you don't have to, yeah. you know, make a hundred percent a year. You know, you you don't have to do that at all. You 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 follow this way of investing, you guys, and I think you'll find that your rates of return will rise substantially above what you would otherwise get in the market, particularly if we go through a big market dislocation and a recession, which we will, uh, you'll start to see the real advantages here. So I think that's pretty good for today. That's the event stuff. Be Sounds sure good. you get one. It's very, very easy <laughs> Wait, what is to it that's at the beginning? 
insist, insist on, on one. one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Till next time, we'll get back into the list again. Almost to the end of it now. Ooh. Going on to the S part of the list, which is the story inversion. We'll get there next time. Okay. All right. All right. Till then, time to go play. Thanks, See everybody. Ya. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.